Our world today is sharply divided. Every nation anywhere on the globe divided always by geography, but now we're divided in political theory, economically, racially, the view of life, the view of death, the view of purpose. You can just write a long list of all the things that divide people on the face of this earth. One thing after another, we have voices, thousands of voices in the printed page, in the spoken word, the internet, news 24-7, and it says it in so many ways, the world, people are divided. The divides are as deep and as dangerous and as wide as they've ever been in the history of civilization. I think that statement will stand up in any honest court of evaluation. And we're looking around and we're shrugging our shoulders saying, and you've got a theory for the answer depending on who you talk with last. All kinds of ideas, all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of bigotry, all kinds of insight, all kinds of view as to what really is taking place. But we as Christians need to be abundantly clear, a reminder as to who we are. Galatians chapter number 3, Paul says, you're all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he expands on this as we go to the book of Ephesians. The Bible says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of hostility, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death hostility. Hostility. I was born in the Laurel General Hospital. Little after 8 a.m. in the morning, my mother was J.L.E. Huff Young, third generation Scotch-Irish. My dad was Homer Theron Young, first generation German. 
I went to school at University of Alabama, Mississippi College, Southeastern Theological Seminary at Wake Forest. By that measure, as a high school guy, I'm a golden tornado. I'm a part of the tide, the crimson tide in Alabama. I was a Cherokee there at Mississippi College, Choctaw. And I guess at Wake Forest, I was a demon deacon. <laughs> and I've known some of those. So also, you could look at me and say that I have a Social Security number. I have two credit cards. I have a bank number. And I'm sure other ways that I can be identified. But let me tell you up front, none of that tells you who I am. Not my blood kin, not my DNA. That has nothing to do with my identity. Paul says very clearly in the verses that I have read, if you are a Christian, not just by name, but a biblical Christian, and by the way, if you're not a biblical Christian, I do not think you're a Christian. That's the only way you get a definition. And a biblical Christian is someone who has confessed sin, received Jesus Christ as Lord. What does that mean? He runs everything in your life. He's the commanding general of your life. He calls all the shots. He decides what's right and wrong, what's up and down, how we move, how we live. He is in charge of everything in a life. He must be Lord. And then two, he must be Savior. This means we, he is salvaging us. It means we're growing, him, we're growing ourselves up in Jesus Christ. And if we have done that, we have been baptized, and baptism is the first symbol with which we'll spend the rest of our life washing the slime off your life and off my life. So Christianity, Lord, in charge of Savior. Definition, basic biblical definition of what it means to be in Christ and Christ to be in you. And therefore, that voice that we hear, and there are many voices, but that voice that we hear has authenticity, and that is that personal relationship with God through Christ as he speaks to us, as he leads us, as he deals with you and deals with me. Lord and Savior, now, if I got an airplane and flew to Recife, Brazil, and in Recife, Brazil, I got transportation, and that transportation would take me down toward the Amazon River, and there I'd get a guide and go to the Amazon, and I would get a boat with a guide, and that boat would take me upstream, and I would come in contact with the Awa tribe, a tribe that is primitive, that has lived a primitive life since its inception there in the rainforest of the Amazon. 
They've had little or no human contract with anybody, anybody. But if I went and met a member of that pristine Awa tribe, and there was someone in that tribe who knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they were in Christ and Christ was in them, I would have more in contact and more in a relationship with him, though his culture is different from mine, his language is different from mine, his race is different from mine, but I would have more in common with him than with anybody else on the planet who is not a Christian. That would be true if I went to China, if I went to Russia, I went to Africa, anywhere on the planet. If someone is Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ, and they're operating on the basis of the leadership of his Holy Spirit, that gives total, complete unity. That's right. We wonder what the answer is for our broken world. The answer is very simple and very profound, but very plain. Jesus Christ breaks down the middle walls of petition, and there's no difference from anybody, anywhere, any place. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, do you know when he says how radical it is to be a Christian? Do you know how radical it is? He said, and he lists all the things he had achieved. All the things he had achieved. He'd list his degree, his pedigree, his brilliance, a Pharisee, a member of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. Paul had credentials like nobody else, perhaps, in the planet at that time, and he was sheer brilliance. But he said in this chapter, he said, all of this that has come before, he said, you know what it counts for with me? He says, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. Literally, he says, a biblical word, it is dung. Doesn't mean a thing. Does not mean a thing. The barriers have been broken down. The walls have been broken down. And all men and women in Jesus Christ are equal if Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their life. That means there is no division in the family of God, and that is, means that it's radical today in our broken world and in our broken America to be a Christian. Now, let me let you read a description of a land by a scholar. The story of this land is the ebb and flow of slaughter and mercy, war and peace founded for unity yet deeply divided, a microcosm of human history. It is a tale of greed and hubris and government and religious persecution, also of human civilization, immense wealth, agri agriculture, 
architectural glory, and religious tolerance. The account of this land encapsulates mankind's finest and most deplorable traits. This is the story of, and we would say, America, right? No, this was written by Herodotus in the 5th century B.C. It's a story of Babylon. Babylon. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said years ago, if God does not judge the United States of America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We live today in America, and we are so much like this description of ancient Babylon. A little review of history. I'll start there when Israel divided. Nation of Israel separate from Judah. Pagan kings, godlessness. Israel was taken out of the picture. And then you have Judah with the capital still at Jerusalem. And for over a hundred years, read it. Over a hundred years, the prophets kept saying to the leaders in Judah, Babylon is going to come and wipe us out over 100 years. Read in Jeremiah, two passages in Isaiah, in Micah, a little bit in Malachi. They kept saying, look, as long as you follow idols, as long as you blaspheme God, as long as you disobey the commandments, as long as you are an adulterous, immoral people, God is going to come and judge Judah just like he judged Israel and wipe us off the face of the map. Prophecy, 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 unheeded, unheeded. Over 100 years went by until finally Nebuchadnezzar number two was king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant, a military strategist. Man, his view of architecture was unprecedented. And finally, he destroys Egypt. He virtually wipes out the Egyptian army. And then he moves and he destroys the Syrians. And then he turns his attention to Judah and he invades Judah. He goes to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and ramsacks it and takes some of the holy vessels out of the temple back with him to Babylon, along with 10,000, perhaps, Jews who were the very leaders of the land of Judah, he takes them back as slaves back into Babylon. And along with that, he takes four gifted young teenagers. We know their names. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The names that were given to them by the Babylonians. And can you imagine these four Jewish teenagers, I don't know, 13, 14, going into Babylon for the first time? Listen, Babylon, ladies and gentlemen, understand, is the most beautiful, fabulous city ever in the history before and after. Never anything before and after can compete with the grandeur of ancient Babylon. 
It was built on top of the Euphrates River. You could see statuaries. You see 41 different temples. It had a tremendous population. It had walls, several walls around it, and they were so thick that Herodotus, historian, tells us you could take two chariots driven by four horses and they could easily pass each other on the top of the walls. It was virtually invincible from the outside. You could not with any military might conquer this unbelievable city. Now imagine, 13, 14-year-old Jewish boy walks there and all they'd seen was a temple Pretty fabulous in Jerusalem, but you could take the temple in Jerusalem and put it in one of the side houses of some of these temples they had in Babylon, okay? And they walked in and they saw this city. Can you imagine? Overwhelmed. And this city was godless, totally pagan, hedonistic, it was called the city of great pleasure. And to show the position of the female in Babylon, every female in Babylon, every female in the empire, rich or poor, no matter what your status was, you had to go sit before the temple of Isis and you had to sit there until some man threw silver in your lap and you had sex with them then and then only could any female go and live out their life. I imagine they had a saying there, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. Would you imagine that? Totally pagan, gothic, totally lost. A culture, a powerful, powerful people. And here these four teenagers enroll in the University of Babylon, and they get a free ride. They're going to be educated by the king. Because why? Why? Those four teenagers, the king wanted to make four Jewish boys into Babylonian men. A little subset here. I wonder why it is we spend upwards of $200,000 to send our sons and daughters to all these colleges and universities so they can be educated in the 20th century, 21st century Babylonian way. I wonder why we do that. That's where we are. That's where we are. Now, I want to say just a footnote here, and we'll see it if you study the book of Daniel all the way through. Thank God for the God-fearing parents of those teenage boys because all the way through their life in Babylon, through the fiery furnace, all the way through the pit of lions, they stood strong to the principles of Almighty God. Now, let's go and see how their education was to be processed. It's very clear in the book of Daniel, chapter number 1, by the way, Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six are biographical. The last six are prophetic. Biograph biography and then prophecy. 
biography of four and then prophecy and you take Babylon and you do take the story here of Babylon and the last times of the last six chapters and blend it in with Revelation and you begin to see something about the end times. Something about the end times. But first there is biography. Look at it, what they were trying to do. Look at verse number four, Daniel chapter one. Youths in whom there was no defect. They were good looking, showing intelligence and every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. In other words, they were enrolled in the University of Babylon so their thinking would be changed. Part of the indoctrination of these Jewish boys. Their thinking would be changed. And evidently, they read the literature, they went through all of it, and they understood that as they sought to get a different worldview. They had no problem with that. Look at the next thing that happened. You see, they wanted to change their worship. Verse 7. Then the commander of the official assigned new names to them. These four boys came there, and they had names that indicated they worshiped the true and the living God. That was the names that they had. But they changed their name and gave them names that indicated they were worshiping pagans. They were worshiping pagans. So their names were saying Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then Daniel had a different name, Belshazzar, a different name. And so we see their names were changed, and they didn't rebel against that. They said, look, that doesn't mean anything. These pagan gods are not real. That didn't bother them. They accepted that. But look where they drew the line, a matter of diet. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, of which the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he would not defile himself. Why eating this rich food, drinking that wine, why would that defile him? It's because the food had been dedicated to idols, and they understood if they ate that food and sat down with those other pagans who were in the same university, they in a sense would be taking evil within them, and they would be endorsing those pagan gods and goddesses, so they drew a line in the sand. I'll tell you something else. They didn't draw that line piously. So many times we make a, Lord, I want to tell you I'm not going to do that because I'm a Christian. I'm drawing a line. Look how they handle themselves. Something to learn from this. They handle themselves with class and godly dignity. They went to the commander who was over there teaching and asked that they might eat different food, vegetables and water, and not eat all that strong food and that rich food of the king's table and all the rich wine and liquor they had. They asked for permission, you know, not, not to do that. And it was not granted. What did they do next? They went to the next person in command, and they said, look, give us a 10-day trial. 10-day trial, just 10 days. And you see how we're getting along with eating vegetables and water and see how all the other students are getting along, drinking all the wine and eating all this rich food and see who looks the best at the end of 10 days. And in 10 days, 
they looked terrifically healthy and all the rest of them had dissipated themselves. You say, what a strange story. No, it's not. Freshman, University of Alabama, first year English. I'm sitting by a guy. I went to a little bitty bucolic school in the boondocks of Mississippi, and he went to a big, classy high school in Birmingham. Man, he was 10 miles ahead of me every way you can imagine going in. And the first day of class, man, he sat there. He answered those questions. We took tests regularly on his paper, A plus, A plus, A plus, and I was struggling to show up. He had everything going for him, but he pledged the fraternity. And about mid-semester, he'd come in sort of halfway watching. And we'd do our papers. He'd come in. I saw now, oh, he made a B. Wow, amazing. And then the, the next week, he, he made a, a C. Next week, he didn't turn in. By the end of semester, he would sit in class with his head down and, and sleeping because what happened? He just absorbed all the fraternity, university life, and he was drunk at night, dissipated during the day. And by the end of semester, I don't know if he passed freshman English. You say, boy, that's a rare story. No, that is a common story in the universities of Babylon in which we have in the United States of America. Face it, that's where we are. Now, we look at what happened and we see this test was granted. Look at the results of the test. By the way, I want to show you something. Look at verse 9, 1 chapter Daniel, and verse 17. It says, now God granted Daniel favor. Verse 17, as for these four youth, God gave them knowledge. You see, behind all of this, when you and I decide to humbly, clearly be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I'm not going to defy myself. God was working behind the scenes in and through all the events, and that happens with everyone whom Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We don't see it. He is working. Doesn't happen zip, but he is working. Then we see the final exam. I love this. Look there in verse 20. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar gave the final exam the king. They'd been studying in his college, eating at his table. And look what happened. As for manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who are in the land. Not only did they graduate top of their class, they were 10 times ahead of all the other pseudo-wise men that tried to control ancient Babylon. My, my, my. Isn't that something? How God honored these four Jewish guys in a pagan land and they were there with Babylon year after year after year until finally about 70 years go by. And I want you to look at Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar, chapter number 5. Powerful, powerful story, so relevant for us today. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of thousands. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. 
so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels out and been taken out of the temple, out of the house of the living God. And the king and the nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them, and they drank the wine and praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And then look what happened. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking. And the king cried aloud, handwriting on the wall, handwriting on the wall. Mocking the living God, worshiping the gods of gold, sound familiar? Silver, bronze, shines, iron, oh, wood, stone. Does that just about cover everybody here? Does that cover about wherever we are today in the United States of Babylon? That pretty well covers it. And then he sees the handwriting on the wall, and nobody can interpret it. He goes against old Daniel now. And Daniel goes out to Belshazzar, and Belshazzar said, if you tell me what this means. By the way, you know whose hand that was, don't you? It was the hand of God. It was the hand of God. What does this mean? Daniel says, I can tell you what it means. And he said, if you can tell me what it means, I'm going to give you gold. I'm going to make you the most third powerful person on the land. And Daniel says, keep all of that. Give it to somebody else. I'm not interested in that stuff. You're God's man, Daniel. He says, mene, mene, tekel, you farson. What does that mean? He looked at Belshazzar and he said, let me tell you what's happened to you. The same thing that happened to your daddy, Nebuchadnezzar number two. He went out on his balcony. You know the story. You're his son. And he said, look, all oh, the beautiful, beautiful, look what I've done. Look at Babylon. Oh, I, I mean, what I've done, the strongest military might, the strongest, most beautiful place in, in, in all the world. Look what I've done. And God took him and made him into an animal. And your dad lived for seven years as an animal. And only when he turned to the living God did God restore him and put him back in a position of power. He said, Belshazzar, you knew the story of his pride. And now you follow this same way. Mene, mene, tikal, you farce. And it means this, Daniel said to Belshazzar, that pagan king of Babylon. He said, it means... I have numbered your kingdom, and the numbers don't add up, and your kingdom is done for. Young's translation. And the next thing he says, I have taken you, Belshazzar, and I have put you on the scales of justice, and you're a lightweight. You don't weigh enough to survive, and you are done for. That very night, the Bible tells us, Belshazzar was killed. And either that night or the next night, mighty Babylon fell. I said, you said, well, I thought it was invincible. Didn't you tell us that? It is. 
You know how the Medes and Persians took, took that ancient city? They went and dammed up the Euphrates River, which ran right through those hanging gardens. And they went in at night through that dry bed. And from the inside, they wiped out the entire city of Babylon and conquered the empire from the inside. That's how it works, isn't it? Abraham Lincoln, 150 years ago, when our nation was divided deeply in the Civil War, and by the way, in the Civil War, 620,000 Americans were killed in all the wars of American history, in all the wars, excluding the Civil War, 644,000 were killed. Abraham Lincoln writes in the middle of that, from whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic military giant step the earth and crush us a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not force by, could not force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge in the trial of a thousand years. No. If destruction is our lot, the United States, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever or die by suicide. Abe Lincoln. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer for America is all these walls might be broken down because I wonder if God would write a message today to the world and to America. Would it not say perhaps to us something like, I've numbered all you folks, and you don't add up enough to survive. And I've looked at you individually, and I have weighed you, and you do not weigh enough to survive. Could it be the judgment of God on America? Could it be the early, early warnings of that shout that will come from heaven and the trumpet that will sound and the dead in Christ will rise? Listen, there is not a prophecy in the Bible concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ that has not already been clearly in place. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're praying for the coming of our Lord and Savior. Is this the moment in history when everything is in place? Judgment in your life and in my life sometimes is slow. Thank God for his grace. Sometimes it is fast, swift to people, and to nations. A few years back, Shreveport, Louisiana, there was a young lawyer there who was a criminal lawyer. He was slick as boiled okra. He was mean and vicious and brilliant. He specialized in getting rapists, murderers, con artists off. He used any strategy he could to buy judges, to buy the other side. It didn't matter to him. He was an atheist and proud of it. 
He specialized in taking the Lord's name in vain. He mocked God. He laughed at Christians. He castigated the church. Very successful, very rich. Specialized on exploiting young girls. Memorial Day, a few years back, he was on a lake there outside of Shreveport. He had three young girls with him. He was 40 years of age, drinking beer, partying. One girl's in the water trying to learn how to water sky. Clear sky, clear sky. And he is profaning and cussing God in sort of a drunken stupor. And he stands up on the end of a brand new boat he had bought. And in his last profane words of mocking God, he looks up into heaven and raises a beer can. He says, here I am. And at that very moment, bang, he was struck by lightning. Three weeks ago, someone who knew the doctor who was called to try to resuscitate him told me this story. Factual, true story. The judgment of God. Where do we go from here? Paul tells us, listen carefully, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, he says, since we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. He says, and even if our gospel in verse 3 is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the good of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, for God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But we have this treasure, that's your life and my life, in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, because we're Christian, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in your body and in my body. Let me tell you the answer to all of this is the clear knowledge of something just listen to it as it is sung for us. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Every color, every race, they are covered in God's grace. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Jesus died for all the children, 
all the children of the world. Every color, every race, they are covered in God's grace. Jesus died for all the children of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely.